You are listening to That'll Preach. I'm your host, Brian, and today we have a unique episode because it's actually a portion of an interview I did a few weeks ago with the Reverend Matt Colvin, and it's a portion that's not included in the original interview. It's such a compelling part that I thought maybe it would work better as a standalone piece. So the original interview was about the role of bishops and pastors in the New Testament and how it's not exactly what we think of today that bishops and pastors were primarily in charge of overseeing the funds for the poor and paying for and supporting the ministry of itinerant prophets and preachers. And this led to a conversation about modern-day debates over women in ministry, specifically women being ordained to the office of pastor or priest or bishop or what have you. And uh, Colvin's response was really, really interesting. So I figured let's just make that its own standalone uh, podcast episode. I think you'll find uh, Dr. Colvin's comments at least interesting, uh, if not even compelling, uh, even if you may not agree with it. I think that he brings a lot of things to the table that are worth thinking about. So I hope you enjoy this episode. For a second, I'm going to put on my egalitarian hat now. And I just heard you know, Dr. Colvin lay it out, you know, with the office and I'm going, oh, interesting. So lay people can preach, right? So you don't have to be ordained. So whatever prohibitions against women being elders doesn't apply to that. (laughs) Uh, And they can preside over the sacrament. So if they're just lay people, then why can't it be a woman? If it's a householder, I mean, some of these women were house owners. So why couldn't they be elders in the community? I mean, how do you, uh, how do you, handle some of those objections if if you make preaching and sacraments um not necessarily tied to official uh offices in the church right um so the first point i would raise is that yeah actually that's what we see um that uh well i should say women did have positions of influence and wealth and had churches meeting in their houses. And Phoebe is said to be a prostatus um, of many, including Paul, which I don't think we should mean, uh, we should understand that in Romans 16 to mean that Phoebe is a leader and she's Paul's leader and he salutes her and and obeys her commands. That's not very likely given the way Paul talks about his own apostolic authority. Um, But it is very likely that it means, uh, when, when it says she's a prostatus, that that's an equivalent of the Latin patrona, um, a patroness, somebody who underwrites the ministry of others. So I don't think there's any... So he's a pa- she's a Patreon supporter of Paul. That's right. Patreon Paul support. has his yeah. Patreon yeah. account. Yeah, and, and yeah. Kickstarter or something. Yeah. That's right. Gotcha. Um, so she's underwriting his ministry, much the way the Didache talks about Episcopal yeah. underwriting ministries. However, she's not called on this cross. Um, and and this, this touches on this huge controversy about women's ordination. Um, and a, a lot of the advocates of women's ordination try to reread the New Testament data and find women office holders. Um, and it, it's difficult to find that. We, we don't have, I mean, we have Junia said to be an apostolos. But that doesn't help us much, um, given that being a shaliak or apostolos c- could be an apostolos of anything, right? 
whoever sent you and laid hands on you and sent you a lot, sent you out with her husband, Andronicus, um, that's who you, she represents, not necessarily that this is a church office, and especially because we've argued that apostoloi are not church officers. Um, but we never find in inscriptional evidence or the records of church councils or the apostolic fathers, we never find female episcopoi. Um, it seems that because of the Greco-Roman associational format of the early church, it was simply assumed, given that an episcopos is a very public-facing office, that this was not something that women it was appropriate for women to be doing. Um, I think there are lots of other re reasons and arguments against women's ordination, um, talking about the, the larger nexus of biblical symbolism of the sexes and their cosmological and redemptive historical significance. Um, but from a, from a sort of first century Greco-Roman sociology perspective, yeah, women could own property. Women could be householders, especially if they were divorced or widowed. Um, women could have businesses and slaves and, and all the rest of that, but we don't see them in this sort of public facing um, head of the organization appointed office of Episcopos. Um, that, that just doesn't seem to be in evidence. Um, but in you would say that that's simply a res like, I mean, how would you, if someone said, well, that, that just proves that that's a cultural thing, that <laughs> that's a, it's a different day now. And, and so that you just, that's the argument. That's just a cultural thing. Right. And if Paul had lived today, he'd be totally fine with women being ordained and, and all those things because we understand sociology differently today. Well, um, there are certainly people who argue that way. Uh, I, I think Andrew Perriman is an example of this in his uh, Speaking of Women, Interpreting Paul. Um, I think it, that another way of putting that is that uh, male-only ordained office strikes many in our day as a deep injustice, um, given that egalitarian view of the sexes is simply the water that we're swimming in. And, and for someone to say, I mean, look at what pastors do, right? They don't need muscles. Um, it's not a military office. They are, you know, their genitals are, are neither here nor there. Um, so isn't a woman as good as a man at it? Um, well, the answer to that is um, partly we need to recognize, you're right, the New Testament never comes out and says, no women Episcopal, right? However, it simply assumes that he'll be the husband of one wife. Well, why didn't it say, or the wife of one husband? It doesn't, doesn't say that. Um, it, it simply assumes it. And the reason, of course, and anytime we're dealing with silence, and as a, as a Baptist, you know this, as you rub shoulders with your non-Baptist friends, um, there's absolute silence that never says, and then Paul baptized the six-month-old infant so-and-so. Right. Or, and then, you know, a mother in the church brought forward her six-month-old infant, infant and said, will you baptize him too, Paul? And Paul said, no, because he wasn't old enough. Um, and he needs to profess faith first. But we never get either of those data points. And it could be because that silence arises from the fact that it wasn't done 
babies were never baptized. That's why we never get a description of one of them being baptized. Or it could be because everybody knew you baptized babies and nobody thought it was special and there wasn't any need to write it down. So it is also with women's ordination. Um, is there an omission of a prohibition and therefore it's okay and probably women were ordained? Um, or is there an omission and a failure to discuss the issue because there was no egalitarian feminist movement in the first century and nobody was clamoring for women to be ordained to this office. Um, for my money, it's the latter. But of course, that's going to feel somewhat unsatisfying for people who want a clobber text. They want a precept that they can just point to and say, see, it forbids it here in this chapter and verse. But it doesn't. Right? That's not how the New Testament reasons about office. Rather, the New Testament hasn't had um, its view of manhood and womanhood warped by the advent of egalitarianism. Um, so would go ahead. So it sounds like you're saying that um, there is no there's no verse that says women can't be elders because right. their culture and the Jewish mindset and the Greek mindset they understood that men are the ones who lead their household in these communities. Yeah. That That's wasn't, right. that, that, was, that was just their assumption. And today people are saying that that's a wrong assumption to have. So in, in a sense, it sounds like what you're saying is, why should we assume that their assumptions were wrong? Right. <laughs> and, and so it's a more, uh, right? So if you start by going from the beginning, we know that to simply say Greek, uh, conceptions about, you know, men in, in leadership or whatever are wrong. That can, that is not an answer we're allowed to say could be right. We, or in other words, their cultural assumptions about gender we have to immediately dismiss as oppressive and evil and all these things. Um, yeah, and I I would just add, do we really want to go there? And do we think that our age has figured it out so well? Um, right. You know, in what other age of human history have the sexes been so messed up? What other age has been using chemical and artificial and surgical means to distort the sexes and their functions? Um, you know, chemical contraception as a sort of default assumption of many North American women. Um, it, it, the fact that masculinity seems to be in crisis and men are confused about what it means to be a man so that they adopt a sort of hyper-performative um, machismo and bodybuilding and, and all kinds of other you know, out there things that would stand out as weird in all previous ages of men and women. Um, this is a huge topic. I'm not the man. Yeah. I, I, like, like you, I'm probably waiting with bated breath for Alistair Roberts to finally publish his um, I know. Errors together. I, that, that's the answer. That's the answer to everything. <laughs> but, but I will say this: um, when we're when we're arguing against women's ordination, there can be a deep desire on a lot of people making that argument to um, lower the stakes and shrink the target, so that we we're not arguing that. The sexes are all messed up. We're not arguing that egalitarianism is bad for society and distorts what manhood and womanhood really are. 
Um, we're not, not arguing that the gender-neutral public square is a horrible mistake. Um, we're just arguing that this, this little church office, this function, this special job, and women can't have that, right? For you know, whatever, whatever our very narrowly circumscribed reason is, for instance, women cannot act in persona Christi, um, or women do not have sacramental power to consecrate the Eucharist. Uh, so if a woman is presiding over the Eucharist, it's invalid and therefore it doesn't work. And that's why you can't have women being priests and bishops. Um, do you, do you see that that's an artificial shrinking of the problem? And um, that's not the way I would want to argue it. I, I don't think it's the way most other Davenant teachers would, would want to argue. Um, I think we would we would argue something more like nature, natural law, um, leads everywhere to male preeminence, um, that patriarchy of a sort, not not the chest-beating performative patriarchy, but male leadership in most realms of life is the norm, um, naturally. I remember that there was a, there was a woman in our class who she had an interesting observation about how well, and maybe this is just tied to it, but like at the same time, and I can hear the rebuttal of like, well, I can hear the rebuttal of saying the first century had a certain conception of men and women that is more accurate to nature and that we've just gone off the deep end. But well, women didn't have rights. They couldn't vote. They couldn't own property. And then it's like, do we want to go there and say, well, you know, maybe they shouldn't be able to da, 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 all that stuff. And I don't know <laughs> that we want to go there. So it, it seems like the, the boogeyman is constantly, yes, but for whatever they got right back then, they got some things we would say are really wrong. Women is property, women not having any social standing at all. Um, is a return to an understanding of the first century necessitate wholesale bringing back everything? You know, is it part and parcel? If you want to say men are preeminent in society, does that mean women are subservient in society in, in ways that have been unfair? Um, and maybe that's a larger conversation for another podcast, but it's just that's just kind of what's going through my mind. Yeah, oh, that's it's a huge question. And um, you're absolutely right that uh, a sort of repristination or a primitivism wanting to go back to the first century and make it the norm in every respect um, that's a really hard sell today. What you're going to advocate the reintroduction of slavery, for instance? Right, um, right, right, right. Well, at, obviously, I'm not going to solve that for you right here on this podcast. But right, um, I think one of the answers to that is um, that actually a lot of these things are really still the case, and when we try to pretend that they're not we deceive ourselves and we create social structures and institutions that, that are deeply dysfunctional and harm, harm women and men um, in ways that distort their, their sex. Um, I mean, that's, that's a pretty big claim. Um, I do think it is probably sustainable. It would require a lot of um, scientific the evolutionary biology argumentation, sociology and, and psychology argumentation, um, data about how men and women work, how they operate in groups, um, 
What's the nature of female leadership? Does it work the same way as male leadership? Um, do we respond the same way to a female voice as we do to a male voice? You know, when, our, when our mothers address us as children, does that come to us and are we receiving it the same way as when our fathers address us as children? Um, is there something different about the sexes even in their parenting of, of children? Does that play out then in roles in society? Um, I've been, I, I would admit to reading a, a book recently that had a lot of food for thought about this question, um, Anthony Esselin's uh, No Apologies, Why Civilization Depends on the Strength of Men. And one of the, the chapters that he has in that book deals with the phenomenon of teams. Um, male, all male organizations where a bunch of men get together and he, he takes the football team as a preeminent example that each person on the team has a different job and they're all aiming at this larger goal, but there's roles of leadership, the coach and the offensive coordinator and the quarterback and, and so forth. Um, and there's that pecking order on the team. Um, and then there's often a great deal of agonism in male groups. Uh, the military works this way also. Um, and it's been, it's been demonstrated also that when you inject a female into a special ops uh, division, right, your commanders are going on the field and they've, they've got one woman in there with them, it just totally changes the dynamic. Um, the men don't operate the same way as they would if it were an all-male group. So um, I think ultimately there's going to be fruit for the church from the crisis of the sexes in the 21st century. Um, as, as the church is forced to address more thoroughly than it has in the past, what is manhood? What is womanhood? How do the sexes relate? Um, but we're living through that crisis right now. And because we're in the middle of it, we should not be surprised that we have a hard time um, and that things that the culture assumes are normal, we find ourselves radically at odds with and perhaps embarrassed about contradicting. Um, so if we, if, we re if we had our, you know, everything set, if we went back to a more robust understanding of how nature informs the relation of the sexes and how that operates in society, it doesn't necessarily mean that we go back into, okay, now women are property, <laughs> we should have slavery, all these things. Uh, I, I would add, one of the answers is when we take seriously the Bible, we discover that a lot of the egalitarian caricatures of it are slanderous. Women weren't property in the Old Testament. Women owned property in the Old Testament. And the daughters of Zelophehad are in there for a reason. Um, you know, the, the Old Testament law was highly protective of women and, and gave them rights that the surrounding ancient Near Eastern cultures did not. Um, so that's part of the answer. Um, is I don't think we should blithely echo the egalitarian slander that the Bible doesn't esteem womanhood. Um, or treats women as, as property. It doesn't. Um, that doesn't mean that it promotes egalitarianism um, and as 
assumes that uh, women can, can and should do everything that men do. Um, I would direct um, some of your listeners to also sample uh, another uh, interesting public intellectual doing work in this field, and that's uh, Leah Labresco Sargent's Other Feminism. She has a substack. I think she does some podcasting as well. Um, she's Roman Catholic, and her the thesis of her, her work is that egalitarianism does not serve women well. It does not conduce to a world in which women are esteemed as women and in which their femininity is given space to thrive and flourish as women. It crams them instead into what is ostensibly a gender-neutral world, but that gender-neutral world is very frequently actually organized with the default assumptions that everybody is basically a man um, and that, right. that they should interact as men. Um, and I, I think, for instance, of the complaints that you often hear about um, the normativity of the male perspective in various fields, for instance, medicine, uh, are different pharmaceuticals being tested on both sexes, or are we just testing them on men and assuming that our results go go equally well for, for women? Um, architecture, the design of vehicles, does it take into account female bodies just as well as it does male bodies? Um, often egalitarianism um, serves the interests of men and does not treat the woman with honor as the weaker vessel and an heir together of the grace of life the way the New Testament tells us we should. Um, and so I think, again, it's, it's exciting times as we're wrestling with um, uh, trying to understand the sexes and trying to answer some of the, the horrible things that our, our age is doing. And if you, if you look at secular society, what is, you know, women's health has become a, a shibboleth code word for abortion. Right. But ab abortion is a deeply anti-woman thing. Right? It's a, a striking at a woman's fertility um, because her fertility is a threat to her flourishing and fitting in in a society that is not configured to respect childbirth. Um, hmm. Well, oddly, it's configured to men because it, it it stops you from doing and being able to compete with men in the in the uh, in a in a career or something like that. Right, I, or you are a woman. You know, I, I've heard it said no woman chooses abortion um, the way you choose a piece of jewelry or choose yeah. what color of car you want to buy. They choose abortion the way an animal chooses to chew its own leg off because it's caught in a trap. Um, in other words. Abortion is this desperate last resort for a woman who um, looks around her at her circumstances and situation and discovers that her life, she perceives, will be ruined if she has a baby. And that says a lot. Don't, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that being pro-life requires us to you know, adopt every child or, mm -hmm. um, you know provide all the financial needs for every woman who has a pregnancy. Um, but what I am saying is we should recognize that abortion is the logical consequence um, and, and the crowning outrage of a world that is against childbirth, um, that is configured to be against childbirth. And we contrast that with the Old Testament. Um, 
where I, I think, for instance, of Tamar in Genesis 38, she wants children or, or of, of Rachel um, when she's married to Jacob. Give me children or I die. <laughs> yeah. Um, or of, of Hannah and Penina in 1 Samuel 1, um, that you know, her disgrace has been taken away because she's been given a child. Um, there's this deep longing and desire for children among women in the Old Testament um, because it's a society where having a child is an honor and um, a glory and an advantage socially and economically uh, in a way that it's definitely not today. Um, that's, I think, a large part of the reason why our society is anti-woman. Thanks for listening to this podcast episode. If you'd like to hear the entire conversation I had with Dr. Colvin, you can find it by subscribing to the That'll Preach podcast, and I'll actually put a link to it in the show notes as well. Make sure you follow us on Instagram at That'll Preach podcast. You can DM us any questions that you have, especially after this episode. If anything uh, made you think, or if you have some follow-up questions, go ahead and DM those to us. And we'd love to incorporate them in a future show. But we want to hear some of the things that this is uh, making you think about and uh, maybe even hear some pushback. We'd love uh, to see you guys respond in that way. Thanks for listening.